Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. People have implicit bias. They just do. And some people are aware of it, some people aren't. And some people, when called out on it, get defensive and go into denial. That's Linda Donikoski. She's a senior assistant district attorney in Cobb County, Georgia, and she served as the lead prosecutor in the trial of the three men who murdered Ahmaud Arbery. Most of you know the story, but I want to remind folks of the key facts. Ahmaud Arbery was killed on February 23, 2020, while jogging through a suburban neighborhood in southeast Georgia. Arbery was a 25-year-old black man. Greg and Travis McMichael, a white father and son, pursued Arbery in their pickup truck. Travis, the son, shot Ahmad Arbery and killed him. Arbery was unarmed. A third man, William Roddy Bryan, who also took part in the chase, taped the shooting on his cell phone. The men told police that they suspected Arbery had been responsible for a string of apparent break-ins in the neighborhood, but offered no evidence. Initially, there were no arrests. But after the release of the cell phone footage over two months later, the three men were arrested and charged. In November, all three defendants were convicted of murder. And this past Friday, the judge sentenced each of them to life in prison. I spoke with Donna Kosky for her first in-depth, long-form interview since the trial. We talked about her trial strategy, what it means to be an effective prosecutor, and her unlikely journey to public service. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Linda Donikoski, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a real honor to have you. I'm sure that it has been a grueling experience trying a case of such significance. 
with the whole nation really, really watching. Uh, we're recording this on Monday, January 10th, one business day after the sentencing hearing of the three defendants took place. All three got life, two without the possibility of parole, one with the possibility of parole. So that's very significant. I know that's what the government had asked for in that case. But before we get to the sentencing and the trial and your thoughts about the case in general and in specific, I thought I'd ask you about your background a little bit. So I, I understand that you were a salesperson in the trade show industry for a number of years. And that's the line of work that you were engaged in even after law school for about nine years before you made the switch to becoming a prosecutor. So my questions are, are, are twofold. One, could you explain your sort of career choice? And two, was the job of being in sales in some ways helpful to being a persuasive arguer to the jury? The answer to the second question is it's ABC. Always be closing. Every <laughs> single thing you do is to convince the jury about- Do you watch Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross every day? Oh yes, every day. <laughs> ABC, <laughs> always be closing. Love that movie. So I come from a line of salespeople. My cousin was in sales for years. My grandfather was a salesperson during the depression. So when I got out of Indiana University with my political science degree, I wasn't really qualified to do anything except read and write. And so I ended up getting a job as a secretary in the trade show exhibit industry. And my ex-husband, who was my husband at the time, um, said to me, he said, you know, you're bored. You really don't like this, you know, being a secretary. Why don't you go to law school? And I thought, you know what? I should. I should go to law school. And I had moved down from Chicago to be with him here. He was getting his PhD at Georgia Tech. And so I thought I'll apply. And I got into Georgia State. But, you know, I don't come from a family that was going to put me through. So I had to put myself through. Uh, so I went on the nighttime part-time program at Georgia State University's College of Law. And while doing that, I also managed to rise up within the trade show exhibit office. And within three years, I was the director of sales. Yes, from secretary to director of sales. And it was a lot of fun. I got to do a lot of travel. I worked with a lot of different people from vice presidents of marketing through Teamsters and people on the trade show floor that were electricians putting the trade show exhibits together. And when we're talking trade show exhibits, it was a matter of, I would walk into a boardroom, there'd be 12 people there, including the president of the company. I'd show them a really pretty picture and go, at CES in January, if you give me a million dollars, we'll build this for you. Right. And they'd go ahead and sign the contract. So after going through law school and getting out, I had a fork in the road. It was either go practice law or take an offer. And a company made me a really, really nice offer. It was one of those, here's your corner office, here's your expense account. We don't expect you to produce anything because trade show exhibit sales is long-term sales. And so it was a deal I couldn't refuse. So that's why even after law school, I went back into the trade show exhibit industry and had a wonderful time. Traveled the world, was in sales for years, had great clients, had great friends, and it was really wonderful. But the writing was on the wall for the trade show exhibit industry with the advent of the internet. 
because a lot of the companies I was working with, they were going, yeah, why am I shipping this stuff across the country seven times a year and paying? I see. Right. So for me, I was kind of going, I got to go back and practice law. I'm about to be unemployable as a lawyer because I've been so far out of the practice of law. Nine years. And had you, had you used your legal skills directly in any way for those nine years? Right after law school, I did. I went and went down to Clayton County. My girlfriend had opened her law practice down there. And I did about a year of defense work, criminal defense work. And I did some domestic works. I did a few divorces, did some other things. But it really wasn't where I wanted to be. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my law degree at that point in time. And I think I went back into sales because it was easy and it was good money. I was commissioned salesperson and it was a lot of fun. So once I could see the writing on the wall and decided to go back and practice law, I I also didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought I would hang a shingle out and do all that sort of thing. But I had a girlfriend from law school who said, no, no, um, come to the district attorney's office in Fulton County. And Paul Howard was the DA at the time. And I was used to long-term sales. And I pestered him for about six months to hire me. And, you know, it was, I think, by persistence because he said, why in the world would I want to hire you? You have no experience. <laughs> Law school was, you know, a million years in ago. In the distant past. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. But he took he took a chance on you and you came on board in 2002. I came on board July of 2002 to the Fulton County District Attorney's Office with no experience at all. <laughs> Were you nervous about that? No, I was, um, I was, stupidly confident that, oh yeah, this is going to be easy. I can do this. Why, why? Wait, you think in retrospect, it was stupid to be that confident? I was super overly confident. I came from a, a sales background and I could convince people of things. So how hard could this be? And to me, I was used to also hard work, meaning because once, once you become a government lawyer, you also become the copy repair person. So I learned how to fix the copier. And I had colleagues who were like, you know, you can get somebody to do that for you. And I'm thinking, it's not beneath me to go ahead and do this sort of work. You know, I'm not special just because I'm a lawyer. So it was easy for me to be a little bit arrogant and overconfident when I first started at the district attorney's office. But I will tell you this. The very first trial I did, I was sales Linda. And sales Linda. <laughs> what does that did not, mean? What does that mean? Oh even? my gosh. Oh, it was terrible. It was it was what I was used to doing, which is, hey, as long as the jury likes me, they'll vote my way. And I hate to say it, but it was kind of like, what can I do to put you in this car today? Sort of over <laughs> sales. It was awful. How did that go? Terribly. Oh, they hated me. It was awful. I got, I have to say this, the jury did do me the giant favor of giving me great feedback that I should never be that way. And so my second trial, I decided to be the TV hard prosecutor kind of person. Also a complete and utter disaster. So that was bad. But my husband, I had remarried at this time, and my husband, who is still my current husband, 26 years, he said to me, he goes, listen, you're not connecting with the jury. Go take an acting class. And I thought, well, then I'm just acting. He's like, no, 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 you've got to find yourself. And I said, okay. So I went down to the Alliance Theater in Atlanta and I took an acting class. And you know how you look around, you can see the, who, who's the worst person in the class? So I did that and decided I was the worst person in the class. I couldn't act my way out of a paper bag. It was just the worst. But what I did do was I found my own voice as a prosecutor 
that didn't have to be a salesman and didn't have to be a TV version of myself. I could just be myself and give the jury what they wanted, which is all they really want from a prosecutor is for you to be trustworthy. Yeah. I mean, the the key advice, which sounds, you know, trivial in some ways or frivolous in some ways is be yourself, which means there are some prosecutors who gesture a lot and walk around the courtroom. There's some who stand rigid at the podium. There's some who speak extemporaneously. There are some who, you know, write out every word and memorize each and every word and pause in their summation or their opening statement. And to me, it doesn't matter as long as it's the way that that person is, because jurors can tell if you're putting on an act. Do you agree? I agree. So one of the other things before we get to the substance of the trial and something they don't teach you about in law school, and they don't really tell you a lot about when you become a prosecutor in the first instance, in crimes that have victims, and in this case, obviously, Ahmaud Arbery was killed, what is the relationship between the prosecutor and the victim's family? And, and describe how that relationship evolved for you between you and Ahmad Arbery's family. Because I think that's an important story that people have not talked a lot about. The relationship between any homicide victim's family and the prosecutor is a developing one, an evolving one especially in this particular case, this was a very, very, I think, difficult bridge-building, trust-building relationship because of how the case started out. The case, unfortunately, for Wanda Cooper-Jones started out with being lied to by law enforcement about how her son was killed and why her son was killed. And it then evolved into a recusal by the local prosecutor, an assignment to another prosecutor who made some very quick judgment calls and eventually ended up in the hands of Tom Durden with the Atlantic Judicial Circuit, who realized, I got to call the GBI in, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation in on this. And then seeing the scope of the case he realized his resources were not up to handling this particular case on just the scope and his personnel and resources. And so here the Arbery family is with Chris Carr, the attorney general for the state of Georgia, having to appoint a fourth prosecution team. And at that time, it was Cobb County District Attorney Joyette Holmes. So the thing about me was this. I had left Fulton County after 17 years in the trenches doing trial work. I had tried over 90 full felony cases to verdict, and the majority of them were homicide cases, and I was exhausted. I wanted to move on to appeals, but as a compliment to me, Paul Howard said to me, "I, I, I can't lose you as a trial attorney. So I saw the opportunity to come to Cobb County and head up their appeals section. And I took on this job in August of 2019. Of course, the homicide happened February 23rd of 2020, and then COVID shut everything down in March of 2020. So when Joyette was appointed to the case, I was home, you know, and and the news hit. And my husband said to me, they're going to call you. And I was like, phone's not going to ring. 
I'm the appeals person. The phone's not gonna ring. And then the phone rang. Of course the phone rang. I mean, he like literally said it. He's like, the phone, I'm like, the phone's not gonna ring. Boom. And he's like, oh, right there, go answer it. And so Joyette called me and said, um, send in the case file over. And so she sent an investigator with the case file over, and that was it. So can I ask you a question? When when you first review the case file, and obviously you haven't interviewed all the witnesses yet or any of the witnesses yet, and I think all prosecutors are different in this regard. Do you handicap the case? Do you think to yourself, well, you know, based on my assessment and my many years of experience doing this, we got about a 40% chance of convicting. We have a 75% chance. Of, do you do any of that? And did you do any of that in this case? No, I actually don't do that. What I do is an assessment of the evidence and the facts. And in this particular case, the law, because I am one of those prosecutors who goes, okay, I, I can quickly understand my case. My case is what my case is. What I want to know is what the defense's case is going to be. Right. What am I going to have to rebut? What am I going to have to overcome? What am I going to have to answer? And how am I going to block their defense? So let's pause on that for a second. So what was your quick assessment of the core of your case? That this case, oh, well, my first assessment was they murdered Ahmad. And... It was obvious. Plain and simple. I mean, there, this is not a whodunit. We didn't have to determine who did what. The only thing you had to determine was what the intent and or motive was, right? Correct. So in that way, given all the homicide cases you prosecuted before, in that way, on its face, was it a little bit easier than some of the other homicide cases? No. A self-defense case is the worst case <laughs> for a homicide <laughs> prosecutor. We've seen that another significant and widely followed cases as well. And so what did you make as an initial matter, what did you make out of the self-defense strength? Well, they had a big problem with self-defense, especially in the state of Georgia, because number one on the video, this isn't self-defense. The first thing when you see that video is, well, why did he shoot him? What, what, what? You're watching this. There's absolutely no reason for Travis McMichael to shoot Ahmaud Arbery. Then you start hearing the narrative that Greg McMichael's putting out. You had no choice. You had to defend yourself. He attacked my son. And so it was like, okay, well, wait a second. That's not what's really going on here. But you want to claim self-defense. Well, let's look at the law. And the law in the state of Georgia is number one. You can't start it. They'd started it. They brought the shotgun to the party. Number two, you can't goad someone else into defending themselves. In my opinion, they had also done that. Number three, you can't be committing any felonies and then claim self-defense. They had done that, aggravated assault, criminal attempted false imprisonment, false imprisonment. So the next salvo had to be, how are they going to get out of that? And their big problem was they went with citizen's arrest. Right. And the reason it was a problem is nobody had ever said at the scene or at the police station hours later that they were making a citizen's arrest. In fact, they were also uncertain whether he'd committed a crime. They were urging the police to go back out there to find out what crime it was that he must have committed. So looking at all that, it was like, okay, legally, we've got this. Factually, we've got this. So where are they going to come from and how are they going to try and win this case? So were you pretty confident then, given the legal assessment? I am one of those people who is incredibly confident and goes forward and prosecutes while riddled with unbelievable doubt. <laughs> so you were less confident than you were with respect to your first case ever. Yes. <laughs> because you would learn from painful experience 
that things don't always go as planned. It's never as it seems. I, I want to talk about jury selection and how odd that was for lay people to understand. So, and we'll talk about race to the extent that factored into this or was deliberately avoided as a theme at the trial. So you have an unarmed black man who's cornered and killed by three white men in the South. When jury selection takes place, the defense keeps striking uh, black jurors and you end up with a jury of 11 white people and one black person. And the judge in the case, in response to objections that you and your team made, I should point out, by the way, that you didn't try the case alone. You were the lead prosecutor and did the major jury addresses, but you had an excellent team with you as well. In response to objections about what you suggested were racially motivated strikes of potential jury members, the judge said something odd that I think is hard for lay people to understand. Maybe you can explain it. That the court said that they found that there appears to be intentional discrimination on the part of the defense, and yet under existing Supreme Court precedent, they could do nothing about that. Can you make sense of that for folks? Sure. So Batson versus Kentucky is the case. And for the state, it's a McCollum challenge. And there's three parts to it. The first part is the side making the challenge. In this case, it was our team that was making the challenge. Has to provide a prima facie case of racial discrimination. And for lay people, what that means is it's just math. Yeah, That's all it is. It's like black juror after black juror after black juror gets struck. You're making what you call a prima facie case that it must be based on race, correct? Correct, because the numbers support that finding. So when Judge Wamsley made that finding, it was strictly just math. You, the defense, had 24 strikes. You used 11 of them on, out of our 12 African-American jurors, you used 11 of your strikes to strike 11 African-American jurors. You know, on that score, by the way, mm -hmm. I know the arguments you make as a lawyer. When the defense is doing that, are you, are you dispassionate about it or are you getting angry and annoyed or irritated or are you just sort of emotionally neutral? Emotionally neutral because I knew they were going to do it. Yeah. I could see it coming. So for me, I knew they were going to do it. I didn't know the extent. I was, how about this? I was hopeful that they would not strike all of the black jurors. I knew that there were certain black jurors that they had a very good reason for striking. And therefore, I was very much expecting those strikes. Right. And so, some of them were, I mean, you're not saying that every strike was inappropriate or improper, because in some cases, there were things that the jurors or the prospective jurors said that indicated they might have bias. They either uh, knew the victim or had some other connection, right? Actually, no. And the only reason I say that is because every single person who knew Ahmad, knew Marcus, Arbery, or the Arbery family had already been struck for cause. So these particular 12 jurors had all indicated that they could be fair and impartial. They could put aside anything they'd heard in the media or knew about the case and decide it based on the evidence presented within the four walls of the courtroom and the law that Judge Walmsley would give them. But they were struck um, for other reasons. And it just has to be a race-neutral reason. Now, that's what I'm saying is there are certain Black jurors where I totally understood based on other answers to other questions why the defense was striking them. And therefore, I didn't move to have them reseated. 
But I did move to have reseated those jurors, those Black jurors that I felt had been struck because of their race, not because of any other reason, because they were perfectly acceptable jurors. The judge found as long as some articulable non-racial basis could be put forward by the defense, he had no choice but to strike them. Do you think that, I'm going to ask you to to be a, a, a sort of legal reform person for a moment. Do you think Batson needs to be updated? Do you think that remains a good and vital tool or is it out of date? Wow, that is a really good question because there's part of me, I've had people do Batson challenges against me. Do I think it's a good tool? Yes, because it makes the, not the proponent of the receding, but the other person, the other side, put on the record their race-neutral reason for their strike And sometimes in their explanation, you can tell this is racially motivated. There's there's a prejudice or a bias. You've decided that you don't want Black people or women or a certain person on your jury because of reasons that are really have nothing to do with whether they're going to be a fair and impartial juror because you're forcing that person to explain themselves. It's just a very odd concept for some people to grasp because you can literally have a lawyer going in, depending on the type of case, absolutely intending, sight unseen, that they don't want black jurors or in a different kind of case, they don't want women jurors. And then it becomes an exercise in finding sort of some other excuse, some other proxy for why you would strike the juror when the intent of the person is to just keep blacks off the jury. And, you know, some people who (laughs) haven't lived under the regime of Batson just find it very peculiar. And, And, you know, I just wonder if there's a better way to do that. I hope somebody figures out a better way to do it because this is the way we've got right now. <laughs> so a, a subject that has been talked about and debated, and I'm sure you've seen people talk about and debate it. There was a, an entire episode of the Daily Podcast discussing your trial strategy in this matter. And there was a lot of talk about how much race was overtly cited and addressed and talked about. And they were speculating about you know, your strategy and, and thinking in the case. Do you care to address how you thought about it and, and whether you stayed away from those issues and for what reasons? Sure. We took a look at this case as a team and we started back in 2020 because we got the case, we got it through indictment and COVID. We had our bond hearing, but well, we first had the preliminary hearing and then the bond hearings. And The defense actually started a drumbeat, not us, that our clients didn't do this based on race. And it's not something anybody from the prosecution had ever, like, put out there. This was something that was out— And because it's not a hate crime, which was not even chargeable back then in the state. Correct. It wasn't part part of the evidence and the proof for the elements of the statute, so— People should understand this at the outset, and we'll get back to the discussion. You didn't have to prove racial bias or racial motivation in any way, shape, or form, given the counts that these three men were charged with, right? Correct. We had structured our indictment on the law that was in place at the time, and Georgia had no hate crime statute at the time. So the men were just charged with murder, felony murder, the aggravated assaults with the shotgun and the the vehicles, and false imprisonment, criminal attempt at false imprisonment none of which the state has to prove a motive for. And yet, as I've often taught to you know, junior colleagues and explained to people again and again, in most criminal cases, 
There's some exceptions like hate crimes, but in most criminal cases, what you need to prove is intent. Did the person intend to kill? Did the person intend to commit arson? Did the person intend to commit fraud? And their motivation, whether it's greed or jealousy or some other animus, doesn't matter as a legal issue. But it kind of you know, does occur to jurors who want to understand the complete story of you know, why human beings did what they did to determine whether or not it was justified or explained or people should be held legally res- responsible for it. So typically you will, you will see uh, in different kinds of cases, prosecutors say this is a case about greed or this is a case about uh, hatred or this is a case about you know, whatever, whatever thing that they're saying it's about, even though that doesn't need to be proven as an element of the crime. So, so given that natural instinct to sort of explain what was going on here, I mean, here you have an unarmed black man who was basically lynched and killed by three white men. Race was clearly a part of it. There's a, there's a federal hate crimes case pending. Query whether or not you would have charged a hate crime if that had been available in Georgia. So it's clearly present in the case, not needed to be proven. How did you think about introducing that or not introducing that? Well, it's just like you just said. It was clear. And in our team's mind, what was going on and what was happening was crystal clear because it was on the video. Here are these three white men, and they've all made assumptions about Ahmaud Arbery, and they've gone after him with their trucks and their guns. So part of what we felt was, we don't need to say this out loud repeatedly to the jury. They're going to see the video. They're going to understand. And less is more. You thought less is more on this on this count. Less is more on that. I mean, when you're saying like, a theme of your opening, I was going to ask you about this, as you just mentioned, was assumptions that these these three men acted not based on evidence, not based on facts, not based on their own eyewitness testimony of any crime being committed, but on assumptions, which is, I guess, I don't know if you thought about this overtly, is is kind of a proxy for saying they racially profiled, right? Correct. And you didn't feel the need to say it more explicitly. I mean, you did say it at one point. I think you said at one point. All three of these defendants made assumptions. Made assumptions about what was going on that day. And they made their decision to attack Ahmaud Arbery in their driveways. Because he was a black man running down the street. Was that deliberate? Yes, because I was quoting Greg McMichael. And... Greg McMichael on his 911 call, when he finally eventually made it, basically said, when asked, well, what's your emergency? I'm out here to tell the stores. There's a black male running down the street. Well, there's a black man running down the street. That was his response on his 911 call. His own words. Right. Do you think, and you know, I hate to do hypotheticals and counterfactuals, if Ahmaud Arbery had been white and every other fact remained the same, although I know people will say it's hard to imagine that that would have been the case because of the role of race and racism in the conduct here. But just assume for the sake of argument that the victim here was white. Would this have been a very, very different case and would you have tried it differently? It would have been an incredibly different case. I don't think we'd have tried it differently. Because... Do you think there would, would have been a different result? No. Because as because what I did when we brainstormed about this, I went to my boss and I said, listen, if everybody was green and everybody was from the same socioeconomic strata and class, then it's still illegal what they did. And there is no justification. There is no excuse under the law for what they did. So it doesn't matter. And he didn't want to make it. You know, my boss, uh, District Attorney Flynn Brody said, I don't want to make this us against them. I don't want to make this a white versus black thing. What they did was illegal. Go show the jury what they did was illegal. 
We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Linda Donikoski after this. Did it matter to you in crafting your arguments and in the decision not to overemphasize race because it was so obvious? Did it matter that there were 11 white jurors? No, because we made this decision early on and our ultimate jury pool didn't necessarily matter in the sense that once we selected those jurors, we knew that they were going to be good jurors. We knew who we had. We knew that they were going to base their verdict on the evidence that they saw within those four walls. They were going to follow the law that Judge Wamsley gave them, and they paid really, really close attention. So I wasn't worried about the actual jurors we'd gotten. We were more concerned strategically about presenting the case in a way to those jurors when we ultimately got them that would not alienate any of them. So I'm going to go ahead and explain it this way. Once we had decided that the law was on our side with self-defense and citizens arrest, and we could completely rebut that, and we knew that the facts were on our side, this was murder. It was on video. It's not a whodunit, like you said. It was obvious what they had done, and their own words were assumptions. The case was ours to lose. And so we started with, well, how do we lose this case? What could we possibly do that's going to ensure a not guilty verdict or a hung jury by alienating the jurors? And the person who was really telling us this was the defense. They did us the great favor of constantly going on the news and being in the media and saying what we were going to say. Even though we'd never said it, they proclaimed well, the prosecution says this and the prosecution has said that. And I'm thinking, I've never said that. We've never said that. No one's ever said that. <laughs> Straw men. Right. But they did us the favor. I mean, I went back before I did my closing argument and I listened again to every interview they'd given, especially the most recent interviews, because they did lay out their closing arguments for me in advance, which was a great favor. So I knew what they were going to say and how they were going to position it. So what? We, but what was the thing that you as a team determined might alienate the jury when it was yours to lose? People have implicit bias. They just do. And some people are aware of it and some people aren't. And some people, when called out on it, get defensive and go into denial. Because nobody thinks that they're a racist and nobody thinks that they're biased. And the minute you start attacking people, you get their back up. You get them in a defensive posture. And the worst fear was, and I'll just give this as an example, pointing out repeatedly that Travis McMichael had the stars and bars, which is the old flag from Georgia, on the front of his truck. Pointing that out to the jurors may have backfired on us, especially if we have a female juror whose favorite nephew also has that in the front of his truck. It's sort of interesting, I think, for people to understand. There are lots of things that you would have been completely within your rights to do. You could have pointed it out. You could have belabored the point. You probably would not have had an objection sustained. And you made certain choices to keep your case as strong as possible. Yes. Fair? Yes. Very fair. Yeah. Did you have a sense when you were giving your opening statement? D describe for people how a courtroom lawyer, this is a question I could ask of defense lawyers and also prosecutors. Do you get a feeling uh, generally and specifically in this case, did you get a feeling that the jury was with you or not with you? And do they react 
with body language and expressions in a way that you can actually detect when you're arguing your case? Yes. So opening statements are very important because they're the roadmap. I have found that if you know your case and you know it inside and out, which I did, that I could go ahead and get a little deeper into the evidence that we anticipated being shown. A lot of prosecutors, I think, hold back. They give sort of a general overview. They talk in generalities. They don't get really specific, which I don't like to do that. I like to get specific. You're going to hear this evidence. You're going to hear the, this witness say this. You're going to hear that. Well, that's very interesting. So why why do you think you diverge from that strategy? I mean, it, depending on the case, in cases that I've ever seen, often you don't want to go into too much detail because if it's evidence that's going to come in through a witness, you kind of never know if that witness is going to be as good and as tight and as crisp as you want to describe it in the opening. And so you don't want to have too much variance between what you say the evidence will show and what the evidence will ultimately show. And so how do you think about that? I walk into it fearlessly. I, It's worked for me. It's been successful for me. And in the state of Georgia, we have prior consistent and prior inconsistent statements. And I've noticed that a lot of prosecutors are afraid to impeach their own witness, but I've done enough domestic violence cases to know that unfortunately she or he is going to get on the stand and they might back up on me. Yeah. And I'm prepared for that because I've got my, her best friend, I've got the doctor who saw her where she made these statements. I've got the law enforcement officer. I've got her 911 call. I've got the body cam video. So sometimes it doesn't matter what the witness is going to say, what that that gang member who's going to now all of a sudden have amnesia on the stand, because I know I'm going to be able to get the statement in anyway. So I kind of walk into opening fearlessly because I want the jury to understand what the scope is right off the bat. So I, I interrupted your answer to the question you were getting to. You were going to address the issue of whether or not there comes a moment when you think that the jury is with you or not. No. I am always terrified of the jury. <laughs> I, and I will tell you why, because there, I've had enough hung juries and I've had a couple of not guilty verdicts where I was stunned at the not guilty verdict, where I thought they understood the evidence. I thought they were following me in my closing argument. I thought to me, it was fairly obvious that the murderer had done the homicide and I thought the evidence was really good. And to have them come back not guilty was a stunner on a couple of occasions to me. So I've also had hung juries that there was nothing I could do about that. I had I had one where I had a 30-year-old young man who told two female jurors that they were stupid. Oh, that was the end of it. It was hung. There's no coming back, especially— Nothing you can do about that. I can't do anything to help them save face to change their mind in that jury room. He had slammed the door when he'd gotten so frustrated back there with them questioning everything. So, yeah, there's nothing coming back from that. So there's no way to know what's going to go on in the jury room. I just want to talk about the defenses that you mentioned a couple of times already and, and flesh it out for another minute. This whole idea of citizen's arrest, by the way, we should also mention, although listeners of this program might already be aware, that that citizen's arrest law was repealed. So the the case that you tried to conviction uh, was significant, not only in terms of what it meant for the victim and the victim's family, but also for legal policy in Georgia generally. Um, Passage of a hate crimes bill and repeal of the citizen's arrest law. You know, when, when, when I've been discussing this case throughout on the Insider Pod with Joyce Vance and before that with Ann Milgram, 
my former co-host, you know, we were struck by how weak the citizen's arrest argument was. Did you think that was weaker or the, or the self-defense weaker? Or do you think that they had to make both defenses in tandem with each other? And one of the reasons why, and I think you destroyed this during the trial, that, that per the citizen's arrest statute, among other things, the crime had to have been committed within the presence of the person doing the arresting, and they have to have immediate personal knowledge, none of which was here, admittedly so, right? Correct. So the citizen's arrest statute was mostly used as an affirmative defense and mostly used for false imprisonment claims civilly, sometimes criminally. So there wasn't a lot of case law on it. And Everybody pulled all of the case law in the state of Georgia on citizen's arrest, and we all looked at it. We discussed it, and it has to be within your immediate knowledge, meaning you really have to have witnessed this crime, especially if it's a misdemeanor, to go ahead and arrest this person. Now, the defense wanted to argue, because there's two sentences, that the second sentence, meaning if the crime's a felony and you have probable cause to believe that the person committed the crime— they took that to mean that you just have to have probable cause, like any police officer might have probable cause, and that you can go ahead and arrest days later. And of course, the common sense there is, well, that's a really, really big problem because I'm in the parking lot, I'm putting my groceries in the back of my car, and some guy comes up and pulls a gun on me, goes, get on the ground. You know, three months ago, you broke into my house. I'm looking at him like, what are you talking about? And what am I thinking? I'm thinking I'm about to be kidnapped by some crazy person not that I'm actually being arrested by this non-uniformed person. So you can't really do a citizen's arrest like that because you arrest the wrong person, they're not going to know what you're doing, and they might actually fight back and want to escape from the crazy person. So there were all kinds of problems with their argument, I think, on a common sense level, but it's all they had. They had to overcome, they had to overcome the self-defense. If you want to claim self-defense, you can't be committing felonies, and you cannot have started it. And the only way for them to say, oh, we didn't start it and we weren't committing felonies is we have to have a legitimate reason for doing this. Well, it's citizen's arrest. Right. As you said, I think more than once, don't go looking for trouble. Correct. Right. Which is a a nice colloquial way of making a very profound legal point. Were you surprised when Travis McMichael took the stand? No, Bob Rubin gave it away in his opening statement. Um, Well, I guess, were you surprised when he, to learn in the opening statement that he would be taking the stand? Yes, because when we did our analysis on the case, we were leaning more towards Greg McMichael taking the stand. Um, And the reason for that is— And and can you remind people, because they may be confused? Sure. Greg McMichael is the father. Travis McMichael is the son. Right. Greg McMichael's the father, and he had been previously a law enforcement officer and an investigator for the local district attorney's office. And so having been in that role in that capacity— And given that we could tell he was the kind of man who would do whatever it took for his son, um, given his behavior after, you know, the homicide, that he probably would be the one to take the stand and maybe do a mea culpa, maybe do something to get sympathy for himself, for the jury, and explain things because of his background. So I had prepped up extensively for Greg McMichael and a cross-examination for him. We didn't think Travis McMichael was necessarily going to testify, partially because we didn't think he'd do a very good job based on having seen him in the courtroom before and his demeanor. And also, 
he had a lot of, there was a lot of ways it could go terribly wrong for him. And then there was defendant Brian, the one who took the video. We had no idea if he was going to testify or not, but we prepared for it anyways. So the answer is yes. So you were least prepared, so you were least prepared for the guy who ended up testifying. And do you conclude that it was a mistake for him to testify? The answer is I don't know if it was a mistake because— Well, did your case get—let strong? me ask it this way. When you concluded your cross-examination of Travis McMichael, which was very, very good, I must say. Thank you. uh, And very crisp. That's my favorite word when I describe examinations of witnesses. Um, And I got made fun of at the office for using the term, but very crisp. Did you feel that you had advanced your case or just avoided damage to your case? After the cross-examination, I felt we had advanced the case. Yes. So doesn't doesn't that necessarily mean it was probably a mistake for Travis to have testified? Yes, but my experience with self-defense cases is that unless you get on that stand and look that jury in the eye and say, I was in fear for my life and they believe you, you don't really necessarily have a chance because you're claiming self-defense. But if you don't tell the jury how it was that you were in fear and the level of your fear and why you were in fear and why it was reasonable for your actions, they really don't have an opportunity to assess that and So I think he had to testify, or at least Greg had to testify for him. That's such an important point, you know, um, that they often don't teach you in law school. And that is, we learn about the doctrine of self-defense and you learn about, and you learn about the precedents and you learn about what the elements are and who has the burden and all of that. But at the end of the day, in in an actual courtroom with actual human beings sitting as jurors, it's not the doctrine that carries the day, right? It's, it's a, a, an observed belief, as you were saying, that the person making the self-defense claim was actually fearful for their life. And some people can't pull it off, and often they can't pull it off because he wasn't in fear of his life, as you made very clear, in the cross. Exactly. And that is always the fear for the prosecutor, that the defendant is going to get up there and he's been so prepped and he's so rehearsed and he knows when to cry those crocodile tears that a juror or all the jurors are going to believe him. And that's the fear with the self-defense case. You know what you're calling to mind, obviously. Another very significant case that was followed by many people in the country happening at around the same time, Kyle Rittenhouse, who took the stand, who cried, who asserted self-defense in connection with his killing of two people and injuring a third. Did you, did you follow any of that? Did you pay attention or were you too laser focused on your own case? We had no idea what was going on. We were super <laughs> laser focused. I'm so pleased to hear that because people ask me that question and people think from time to time that prosecutors who are in the middle of trial have the luxury of following the news and what's going on with impeachment and what's going on with other cases. You had no time for that. No time for that at all. We were up at 5.45 in the morning, out the door to the courthouse, out of the courthouse by six o'clock, home trying to eat dinner, trying to be in bed at 9 p.m., just so I could, of course, stare at the ceiling from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. thinking about the case and then try and go back to sleep. <laughs> well, well done. There were a couple of other weird things that happened at the trial. For example, this claim that kept being made by one of the defense lawyers about black pastors being in the, in the galley. Obviously, there's only so many pastors they can have. And if their pastor's Al Sharpton right now, that's fine. But then that's it. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here or other Jesse Jackson, whoever was in, was in here earlier this week. What did you make of that? 
All right. So first off, I want to say that Kevin Goff, the attorney for Mr. Bryan, is a brilliant legal scholar. He wrote the best motions. He wrote the most comprehensive brief on citizen's arrest. He did an excellent motions job. The guy is is just intellectually brilliant. In my humble opinion, he lacks the emotional intelligence of reading the room and understanding. Read the room. Read the room. Very important. Right, right. And so he would, his style and presentation, in my opinion, was off-putting, I think, for a number of, of reasons. But those particular comments about Black pastors, that was made all outside the presence of the jury. Yeah. And his whole argument and everything he did was calculated for appeal. So this is how smart I think Kevin Goff is. Kevin Goff knew Mr. Bryan was going to be convicted. He knew what his client had said. He knew what his client had done. He knew it met the elements of felony murder based on the aggravated assault, false imprisonment, and criminal attempt at false imprisonment. And he was doing every single thing he could to create issues that he could then bring up on appeal. And he was doing a very, very good job of it. And I know a lot of people were very surprised when I actually stood up and told the court on the record that he's a brilliant attorney. But this isn't my first rodeo. And I've seen this strategy before. And I've seen some defense attorneys attempt to do things that cause, I'll just call it a hubbub, in an effort to then later claim that that hubbub somehow prejudiced their own client when they were, in fact, the reason for the hubbub. Yeah, but you don't expect that having concluded the trial, to be any kind of basis for a meritorious appeal to you? No, not at all. Right. So here's another weird thing that happened at the trial. One of the other defense lawyers said in describing the victim who was killed, Ahmad Arbery, described him as having long, dirty toenails. Turning Ahmad Arbery into a victim after the choices that he made does not reflect the reality of what brought Ahmad Arbery to Satilla Shores in his khaki shorts with no socks to cover his long, dirty toenails. What the hell was up with that? The answer is I don't know why Laura Hogue, the attorney for Greg McMichael, said that in her closing argument. And I don't know if it was an attempt to once again try and make Ahmad out to be the intruder, which is what they called him throughout the trial, to do that sort of stranger danger or he's not one of us kind of arguments. But I personally think it backfired on her immensely because when she said it, I was aghast and thought, <laughs> Did you, what? Do you, have a, do, you have a, do you have a philosophy of maintaining poker face? That's generally what prosecutors, actually all trial lawyers are taught. Did you maintain a poker face or do you try? I try very, very hard to maintain a poker face because I don't do it very well. So I try and overcompensate. <laughs> and, and what about on that at that moment? I have no idea. I'm sure by, I was taking notes. So I remember thinking my eyes probably got really big and I thought, don't look up, don't look up because they'll see that your eyes have gotten really big. And what is she talking about? <laughs> Talk about not reading the room. Do you have, do you have a philosophy of making objections? Yes, I do have a philosophy on making objections. And my philosophy is this. At the beginning, make objections so that the defense knows where the line is. Because I've seen way too many of my colleagues let the defense get away with it and get away with it. And finally, they'll object. Right. And you haven't taught the defense anything. You've kind of taught them. Or the judge or the court. And the court 
has also not been trained to be sort of, you know, vigilant about the line too, if the prosecution has let it go unchecked for so long, right? Correct. So right out of the gate, I am, here's where the line is. I'm going to object. You're going to do this stuff. I'm going to object and I'm going to stand up. Now, as the case unfolds, as we all know, you analyze whether an objection is appropriate. You analyze whether it's worth it. Is this evidence going to hurt us? Is this something we need to object to? And you make those judgment calls in the moment, and you have to be quick on your feet to be able to do that. But right out of the gate, I like to go ahead and set the parameters and the rules that I'm going to be playing by. You said earlier that you don't follow you know, other cases and the news of other cases because you're busy on your own case. But because your case was so prominent, there were a lot of armchair quarterbacks. Do you ignore all of that too during the trial? Do you get told what people are saying about the strategy and how it's going? Or do you just bear down on the case and only the case? Well, because we have an excellent, excellent team, what I told the team to do is this, to look at any constructive criticism that actually was meaningful because um, one of our, our people on the team who is monitoring that is actually a lawyer, not just a media person. And so she really would be able to say, here's some constructive criticism that we're getting. And I told her the rest of it is just noise. I don't want to hear it. That's really interesting. So you used it as a as a device to actually Im- improve your strategy and approach at trial. You sort of, you sort of crowdsourced to to the cable networks and the punditry a little bit of extra help. Right. If someone was making a good point, there was some constructive criticism. There was something I was doing or the team was doing that we needed to not do or do better. That was great constructive criticism. But anything else was like I told her, just noise, and I didn't want to hear it. Screened out. Right. Was there any example of that? Because from everything that I saw, it was mostly praise for your performance. Actually, the most memorable piece of advice came from another lawyer, as a female lawyer, and it was, you and Miss Olivier need to stop cutting up and, and kind of making faces and laughing. And she's oh, Yeah, that's the poker face thing. The poker face thing. And she said, basically, it's a double standard, but as women, we can't get away with it. And... And basically, she wanted us to not, she was trying to help. And she says, I don't want you to alienate the jury because women can't get away with doing this. You've got to maintain the poker face. So that was some feedback we got early on in the trial from another lawyer. I think she was out of Tennessee. So the case is over. Everyone rests. The jury gets the case. Do you make an assessment at that point? Or do you think to yourself, that went in really well and we should get a conviction or based on what you said earlier, which I think is likely the case among most prosecutors, you never know what a jury will do. So you don't feel necessarily any confidence, or did you in this case? I never know what a jury is going to do because I don't know what the dynamics are going to be in the jury room. Because you can have a number of people getting along beautifully during the we can't talk about the case phase. Once you start talking about the case, all hell breaks loose. Right, because, and I've told jurors this, I said, you may look at me and think, oh yeah, Ms. Dunikowski, I know exactly what you're talking about, I'm with you. But the person sitting next to you may be thinking, that's not at all what I believe, and I totally believe what the defense is thinking. And you don't know that until you talk about it in the jury room. So I never know I never know what the jury is going to do or what the dynamic and how it's going to play out in the jury room. Do you, um, did you look at the jury when they came back before they announced their verdict? Yes, I always do. And how did they look to you? They looked resigned and sad. And does that, did that indicate to you likelihood of conviction? Yes. 
the did I think or believe that 12 people having seen that video and the evidence we presented would come back with a not guilty verdict? I had enough faith to think that 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 would be really, really, really hard. I was more concerned about a hung jury and doing it all over again. Um, and when they actually announced a verdict, all I could do was say, please let it be the right verdict. Please let it be the right verdict. Um, and when they walked in and they were sad and resigned, that to me is an indication of their acknowledgement of the tragedy about their verdict, which is we're going to hold you responsible for what you what you did for your actions. Had there been no video in this case, would it have been triable? Oh, yes. And would you think the conviction was, you know, very, very less certain, somewhat less certain? How would you how would you rate the difference in the strength of the case with or without the video? A video always makes a case stronger. It always does. Because people in this day and age really want to see it with their own eyes. Jurors trust themselves. And a video will always make a case so much stronger. Was it triable and winnable without the video? Yes, just based on their actions and their own statements in the aftermath of what took place and how it went down, it still would have been a triable, winnable case. So... I asked you earlier in the interview about your relationship with the Arbery family. So take us to the moment after the verdict or the series of verdicts and and how the Arbery family reacted in, in your conversation. So after the verdict came back, the courthouse, we had kind of set aside some space so that they could be alone and have the moment to themselves. Because for the lawyers and this was really a, a family matter for them in the moments right after the verdict. But after that, uh, we all went into the jury assembly room um, to meet and talk and everything. And it was very emotional. Um, everyone was crying. Everyone was hugging. And so it was, it, was, it was really meaningful to be able to have been part of the team that brought justice for their family. It's interesting you use that term. And after terrible cases like this, particularly when there was likely racial animus involved, and people say, you know, justice was done, there are folks who will say, and sometimes it's members of the family, that no, justice would have been the crime didn't happen in the first place, or justice would have been, you know, an earlier arrest or some other such thing. How how do you think about whether the case and the verdicts accomplished justice or not? Every case is a long road, and every case has its own bumps and problems. It's never smooth. It's never TV. We got where we needed to go uh, to trial and to holding the murderers accountable. So I know they always say it's it's never the destination, it's the path and how you got there. But sometimes it is actually the destination. It is the verdict. It is the sentence. Um, so in this case, we got there and, and justice was done. Were you surprised at all that the court agreed with you? on the sentences? No, I think Judge Walmsley had been thinking about this ever since the verdict. I think he spent the entire month of December mulling over the evidence that he heard that was presented to the jury, their verdicts, and what the sentence ranges were. And I think he did a lot of deep thought. Our team had done a lot of deep thought about what we were going to recommend. And we had talked to the family about our recommendations and recommending life without the possibility of parole for the McMichaels and then life with parole for 
a defendant, Brian. So I think he put in the same amount of energy and thought into it. And what we recommended happened to probably be exactly what he thought as well. Do you have a, based on this experience, do you have a view about whether there should be cameras in the courtroom? <laughs> and what was that experience like that's fraught and, and fretful enough just to try a very significant homicide case because of the case and the family members and the rule of law and everything else, but for it to be televised day after day after day nationally, how did you cope with that? Well, my coping mechanism was to tell myself that only three people were actually watching and one was my <laughs> sister and she's a big fan, so it didn't really matter. And this hasn't been my first time. The first time I was on a high-profile case that got this kind of level of media attention had been the Atlanta Public School cheating scandal trial. Right. And you just start to ignore it because you're just putting your case up and it becomes part of the courtroom equipment and I allowed myself to go there this time. I, I told myself the most important thing is doing the job, doing it well, doing it right. And to let the junk stress of, of the TV cameras come into that is a disservice to the family. And I wasn't going to let that happen. You know, it's it's been my experience that lately, given a lot of things happening in the country, that for some folks, it's not very fashionable to become a prosecutor. What would you say to people who are coming out of law school who want to do public service? What's the argument you would make to them? People who care about criminal justice reform, people who care about the rule of law, people who care about inequality. What would you say to them about why they might consider a career as a prosecutor? Because as a prosecutor, you actually are the person making the biggest difference. And the reason I say that is twofold. Number one, you are the voice of victims. People forget about the victims. They, they, they are upset that someone's been charged for a homicide, but they're forgetting that, the per, that there's a dead person. This is, a crime actually did take place, and there's potential that this person who murdered this other person could do it again, and there has to be justice and accountability. But the prosecutor is also the person who has the power to go behind law enforcement and go, ah, yeah, we got this one wrong. This isn't right. We have You got the wrong person. You've charged the wrong man. We have to dismiss these charges. We've got to fix this person's record. And I have done that on numerous occasions. In two homicide cases, we actually reinvestigated and went, oh, yeah, these aren't the right people. These are not the people who committed these murders. And so I've dismissed charges against numerous defendants where we've researched it, we've looked at it, we've gone back and interviewed the victims, um, found victims who have lied for various reasons, um, found victims who were mistaken for various reasons. And as a prosecutor, you're able to go ahead and fix that and make that right. And you're also the one who can make that decision about, is this somebody who is a danger? Like, is this somebody who really should not be with the rest of us because they are a danger? They, they don't care. They're going to do this again. Or is this somebody who is just caught up and, and it's one of those things where we're mad at them. We're kind of like, hey, could you just get it together? Become, become a good citizen and, and, and just, you know, we're going to give you the chance to be that person, criminal justice reform. And the prosecutor is the person who has the ability to do that. The other thing I agree with you that we're missing are those career prosecutors. We have a lot of people who do, as young people right out of law school, they want to become prosecutors. The problem is, once again, is 
they're underpaid, they're overworked. And once you enter into the life cycle, and I'll call it the life cycle, once you enter into that, I'm getting married and I'm having children and, oh my gosh, I might have to put them in private school or send them to college. It becomes about the money. Um, unless you have a passion and you become that career prosecutor, it's a lifestyle. It is a choice and it's wonderful. It is absolutely wonderful when you are that person who is able to be that voice for that victim who is never going to have a voice unless you were there to do it for them. It's, it's a very, very satisfying thing. Well put. You've been very kind with your time. I know you have a lot going on. Linda Donikoski, I'm so glad that you left sales and you've maintained your service to the public, not only in this case, but in so many other cases. And I hope you continue to do it for a very long time. Thanks again for your time. Thank you so much for having me. My conversation with Linda Donikoski continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week by recognizing some of the legends that we have lost in recent weeks. On New Year's Eve, we lost Betty White at the young age of 99. Last Sunday, we lost one of America's iconic television dads, Bob Saget, who played Danny Tanner on Full House at only 65. And last Thursday, we lost actor, director, writer, and activist Sidney Poitier at age 94. And it's Poitier that I would like to linger on. Many of his successes and achievements are well-known. He won an Academy Award for Best Actor for the 1963 film Lilies of the Field, in which he played a handyman who becomes a close friend to a group of Catholic nuns who begin to believe he is a divine force. That marked the first time that a black man had ever been honored as Best Actor. It would not happen again for 38 more years, when Denzel Washington won it. In 1967 alone, Poitier starred in three era-defining films, To Sir With Love, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and one of my favorites, In the Heat of the Night, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture. In that film, Poitier played Virgil Tibbs, a black police detective from Philadelphia who joins up with a white Sparta, Mississippi police chief named Bill Gillespie, a memorable turn by Rod Steiger, to investigate a conspiracy surrounding the killing of an industrialist. To me, it's a must-watch and poignant film about racial hatred and redemption. Poitier was born in poverty to tomato sellers in the Bahamas in 1927. His parents sent him to live with relatives in Miami when he was 14. He came to New York while he was still a teen. He lied about his age and served as an army medical orderly during the final years of World War II. After the war, Poitier began to dream of an acting career. But while dreaming that dream, he worked as a dishwasher in Astoria, Queens. He still spoke at this point with a thick West Indian accent, and so acting was a bit of a pipe dream. And so he listened to the radio and read the journal American to work on his English. While working in the restaurant, Poitier had a chance encounter that changed his life. He explained in a 2013 CBS Sunday morning interview with Leslie Stahl. One of the waiters, a Jewish guy, elderly man. I had a, 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 a newspaper and he walked over to me and he looked at me and he said, what's new in the paper? And I looked up at this man and I said to him, 
I can't tell you what's up in the paper, I said, because I can't read very well. He says, let me ask you something. Would you like me to read with you? Uh, I said to him, yes, if you'd like. Now let me tell you something. Every night, every night, the place is closed. Everyone's gone. And he sat there with me. Week after week after week. I learned a lot, a lot. And then things began to happen. The rest, as they say, is history. Poitier told the story of his kind waiter teacher many times. In his 1980 memoir, This Life, he talked in more depth about the impact that that teacher had had on his life. Quote, This soft-spoken, natural teacher, with thick bifocals, bushy eyebrows, and silver-white hair, sat with me night after night in the twilight of his years and gave me a little piece of himself. I have never been able to thank him properly because I never knew then what an enormous contribution he was making to my life. I don't know if he's alive or dead, probably dead by now, but he was wonderful, and a little bit of him is in everything I do. I find this story of a waiter and a dishwasher incredibly moving. We say all the time that trailblazers stand on the shoulders of giants, and of course they do. But they also need kindness and support from ordinary people to reach their own level of greatness. And so I also find myself marveling at a man who admitted his weakness and so honored a kind teacher. What a legend and what a lesson. God bless Sidney Poitier and may he rest in peace. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Linda Donikoski. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669 669- 247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Doss. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.